This past weekend, we had our elder retreat here at the church, and that's just a fancy word for extended time together. Uh, and so the elders, the six of us, spent all day Friday and a good chunk of the day Saturday together, and it was so refreshing, so good. Some people have said, well, what do you guys do? And uh, I think the whole thing can be summed up in the word eating. Uh, there was a lot of... No, just kidding. There's a lot of fellowship, a lot of good stuff. We just have extended time to pray, to discuss things. It's a real blessing. So thank you to Dad and Brian, David and Chris and Joey. It was a wonderful weekend together. And I'm worn out in the sense of just being kind of on, but I'm invigorated at the same time. So it's just been a real blessing. Thank you for providing us the time to do that. Two weeks ago... Uh, as we were getting through the book of Matthew here, we finished the section of the Sermon on the Mount known as the Beatitudes in verse 12. And in that section, Jesus is giving to his disciples the code of conduct, as it were, the standard of living for those who have been redeemed by his grace. This is not ethics to earn your way into the kingdom. This is the way that people who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus ought to live, characteristics of their conduct and their actions and their speech. And that section ended two weeks ago in verse 12. And so Jesus is going to continue that same kind of teaching on through the Sermon on the Mount all the way through chapter 7. But before we get into the sections about anger and divorce and uh, giving and you know all those kinds of things, there are two sections we have to deal with. And it's not that these are radically different, but as we come in our working through the book this morning, we come to verses 13 to 16, and Jesus is going to define what the disciples are. He's going to call them salt and light. We're going to spend our time today looking at what exactly that means for Jesus' disciples and then for us as we are also the disciples of Jesus. Then next week, we're going to take a look at the next section in Matthew, which I know it's kind of dangerous to say things like it's the most important or it's the whatever, but this next text in Matthew about Jesus fulfilling all the totality of the law and the prophets in his ministry is stunning. And what that will do for us in raising our affections for Christ, in seeing all that he has done for us, the burden that has been lifted by his obedience is just absolutely stunning. So I'm excited for this morning. I'm excited for next Sunday. Hope you can be back with us for that because it is a powerhouse of a text to see what Christ has done for us. So today we talk about salt and light. Next Sunday, we talk about Jesus' fulfillment of the law, and there's a lot for us to get into this morning. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 and follow along as I read, starting in verse 13. So Matthew chapter 5, we'll read verses 13 through 16, and we'll begin for the morning. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works 
and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, we confess to you this morning that on our own and in our, what we would consider our strength, we, we don't have what it takes to be faithful to you in these areas. We don't have what it takes to be salty. We don't have what it takes to be light. It, it requires a work of your spirit. And so, Lord, even for us who have been regenerated, who have been saved and have been washed by the blood, we, we still need your power. We need your spirit on an ongoing basis. It's not as if we start in the spirit and then continue in our own strength, but we need you, Lord, for the totality of our Christian life. And so I ask this morning that you would come and grant us this strength. What an encouragement to hear from Luke and from your word this morning about your unending supply of power and the way that it's <clears throat> demonstrated in the world. And God, we ask that that would be applied to us this morning because there is no hope of us living this text unless you grant us the power. And so we ask that you would do it, not for our glory, not for our recognition, but that we would be obedient to this text so that what it is telling us may come true, that you would receive glory because of the way you empower us to live our lives. So Lord, come, do this work, and be pleased in our obedience, we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you'll notice in the back of your bulletin, I've included the outline. I don't always do this uh, for the messages, but I thought it would be helpful today to include that. So we're going to look at these three ways that Jesus is talking to his disciples, how he defines who they are, your salt and light. He gives a description of what that looks like, and then finally he'll give us a demonstration of how this looks as they live out their lives. So I know that's helpful for some of us, not so much for others, but if that's something you want to take advantage of, please use that on the back of your worship folder this morning. So let's start with the first section, which is definition, and I want to focus on how Jesus calls his disciples the salt of the earth in verse 13 and the light of the world in verse 14. So this is the definition. He says the disciples are salt and light. Let's look more closely at what he means. The use of this salt metaphor... Seems pretty straightforward, and it is, but there's some people who can't help themselves, and they just want to try to figure out some sort of hidden and secret meaning, and I ran across, no exaggeration, 11 different ways of understanding this salt thing, and it was just, it was some really wacky stuff, and so I don't think we need to be super concerned about narrowing down to one specific thing. I think we can take this salt metaphor somewhat broadly, and so if we think, what, what generally is the use of salt? How do, we, how do we generally use salt? Well, I think it's for flavor and preservation. That's pretty general, right? We use it to draw out flavor in food or we use it to preserve something. Our family likes to process meat and make sausage and curing and all this kind of stuff. And you have to put salt in it or the bacteria will grow. So it is a preservative in the sense that it maintains uh, the freshness. It maintains what is already present in the meat or the whatever you want to use. So salt not only preserves flavor, but it also prevents against spoiling. 
against things getting wrecked, against things becoming useless. If you put a bunch of time into making something and you forget that preservative aspect and then it gets ruined, you've wasted all your time. You've wasted all your resources. You've wasted the materials that you've used. So I think this general twofold understanding of salt being a preservative and a flavoring fits Matthew 5 pretty well. I don't think we need to be really concerned with getting a narrow understanding of what's going on here. Also, notice that Jesus calls his disciples the salt of the earth in verse 13, and then in 14, he says they're the light of the world. So by Jesus using these terms, earth and world, it's reinforcing what we have already established as the Gentile mission theme of Matthew. So this is not just a narrow application. This is not teaching that only goes to these 12 people or 20 or however many were sitting around here. This is meant to be a global kind of message. Salt of the earth, light of the world. This is not just something given exclusively to the nation of Israel or to the disciples. Jesus doesn't say, you are the salt of Israel. Although in one sense that's true. Like that's their immediate context. That's where the disciples are going to practice this first. But he uses earth and world, I think, to expand the reach of the gospel. So the way that he's commending them to live is not just for them, The whole point is that they are going to take this message, as we're going to see at the end of the book in Matthew 28, and they are going to go to the nations, and they're going to spread this way of living, this kind of conduct, and this kind of instruction from Jesus. So just as salt is used to enhance flavor, to make something more enjoyable, so the the speech and the conduct of the disciples is going to be attractive in one sense as people interact with them, as they experience their teaching, and as they are faithful to the Lord. But along with this definition, we also have a warning that comes in verse 13. Look at verse 13 again with me. Jesus says, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, I think in this warning or this statement, we actually understand more of what Jesus means when he says, you are the salt of the world. And I think that this uh, salty, losing its saltiness thing, critics of the Bible have long looked at this and they've said, well, okay, come on, this, this can't be true because salt can't lose its saltiness. It's either salt or it's not. And we just have to remember when we read stuff like this in the Bible, Jesus is not making a scientific statement. He's not giving the formula for sodium chloride and how everything holds together and works together. He is making a statement about ethics, about lifestyle. This is not meant to be a science lesson from Jesus. So when people read stuff like this in the Bible and they're like, well, see, you can't trust anything the Bible says. That's not true. That's taking it way too far. That's not Jesus' point. We have to deal with the context of what he's saying. So he's not referring to chemistry, he's referring to ethics. So I think that in this situation, what Jesus is saying, the saltiness, the fact that disciples are salt, refers to distinctiveness. To be salt of the earth is to be distinct. What sets a person apart, what makes them stand out. And the warning here, you hear what Jesus says, he's saying that if the disciples do not maintain this distinctiveness, if they do not follow in obedience and live this life out in the way that he's instructed them to do, they are going to be worthless. It's really clear. They are the salt. So when he's talking about the salt, he's talking about them. You get that? 
Right? You see that in the text? So, even stronger than this, and I thought this was really interesting, something that I learned this week, is that Jesus says that if they lose their saltiness, so look at verse 13 again. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, that's one verb in the Greek, and it's the same verb for become foolish. So Jesus is saying, if you don't maintain this saltiness, if you don't live in the way that I have instructed you, you're fools. Because this is the way to live. This is the way of life. This is the way of peace. It is the way of faithfulness. And so when he says it's going to lose its taste, he's saying that's foolish. Don't do that. Don't lose the distinctiveness that I have given you through this instruction. So someone says, oh, that's hogwash. Salt can't lose its saltiness. It's a stable compound. They're pushing it too far. This is not a statement of chemistry. It is a statement of faithfulness and of obedience to the word of God. So where's the warning? I said there's a warning here. The warning comes when Jesus says that those who, in effect, have lost their saltiness, that is, those who do not live lives of distinction from the world, they'll be thrown out. They'll be trampled. It's, 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 a, it's a metaphor for uselessness. Oftentimes when salt was mined by the Dead Sea, right? They'd mine it out of the rock and the stone and everything. Sometimes in the mining process, there'd be a whole bunch of sediment and pollutants and soil and stuff. And at times, if there was enough pollutants, they'd have to throw the whole batch out. It just wasn't worth it. There wasn't enough salt content. So where do you throw a bunch of half-salty dirt? On the roads. Because it didn't matter if the sodium killed the vegetation on the roads. That was actually kind of helpful in a sense. So Jesus' metaphor fits the time where when these batches of salt would be mined, if it wasn't salty enough, if there was too much pollutant in it, it'd just get thrown on the road, trampled underfoot. That's where that verbiage comes from here. And don't let the road usage fool you. I read one commentator that was talking about, well, maybe Jesus is saying, you know, if you can't hack it, if there's not enough salt in your life, I have another purpose for you, and it's just as good, it's just as noble. You can, you can clear the path for other people. That's not right. We should not look at this and think, oh, okay, well, that's kind of a secondary. Nope, this is, this is kind of degrading, dishonorable language. You get thrown out, trampled, you're useless, you become a fool. This is very strong words from Jesus, isn't it? Where he's saying, I've showed you how to live. I'm going to teach you how to live in my kingdom. And if you don't do that, if you choose to be a fool, to lay aside what I've given you, then you know what? Go to the road. There's no use for you in the kingdom. That's stern. But that's what Jesus says. Now, in addition to salt, Jesus also defines his disciples as the light of the world in verse 14. Now, I think we need to clarify something here. When Jesus calls his disciples the light of the world, he is not saying that the disciples in and of themselves have become the light or have the light in them by some kind of internal sense, but he is saying that it is on account of their connection to him that they are also the light. So Jesus isn't saying, well, I'm the light of the world, but I'm going to be done now. I'm no longer the light. You guys be the light. That's not what he's saying. This isn't a replacement. This is partnership. You can think about it in terms of like the sun and the moon, right? So Jesus is the sun, S-U-N, sun, and the moon gets all of its light from the sun, right? We, we understand this. So Jesus is the source 
the disciples are simply reflecting the light that comes from Christ. So don't read that and think, oh, okay, well, Jesus is kind of relinquishing his duty as the light of the world, and now it's all about the disciples. Just a chapter ago in Matthew 4, Jesus quoted from Isaiah, and he describes the coming of the Christ as, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the region in the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. John, in his gospel, will develop this idea of Jesus being the light of the world much more. But for now, suffice it to say that Jesus is the exclusive source of light. And the disciples now, as they take his teaching, his ethics, his standards into the world and spread the gospel, they become the light because they are united to Christ. Does that make sense? So they're not themselves the source. They reflect what Christ is and the light that he has. So they are to be the light of the world. Now, what is the purpose of light? Specifically in the Bible, how do we see this used? The psalmist uses this analogy a lot. In some places he says that the word of God is a lamp to the feet and a light to the path. And most often we see light as illuminating, right? Light is used to reveal things. Light is used to make a path safe to travel or to make something that is unclear more clear. And Jesus says that the disciples now are going to fulfill this role by shedding the light of the gospel, shedding the light of Christ on the darkness of the world around them. This is very evangelistic in its thrust, and we're going to see that when we come to verse 16 specifically. So those are all true and biblical uses that light reveals, that it uncovers, that it exposes. But I think Jesus has more than that in mind when he says, you are the light of the world. This brings us to our second point here, the description. So number one, Jesus defined the disciples, salt and light. Now he gives us a description of what that means. And he's going to focus mainly on the metaphor of light. So he gives two descriptions of what this means in verse 14 and 15. First, a city on a hill, and secondly, a lamp on a stand. And I think that these two descriptions deal with two different things. Related, of course, all in the light context. But I think he's dealing with both the corporate nature of the disciples' light in the city on a hill and the personal nature of the disciples' light with the lamp on a stand. So let me explain what I mean by that. I don't fly very often. I don't like to fly. I don't have reason to fly very much. But a few times, I've come in and landed at night. You guys ever landed at night when you fly? And so if you look out your window, at first you just see a glow. And then the closer you get, that glow gets brighter and brighter, and then you can start to see little tiny individual specks down there. And they look really, really microscopic. And as your plane comes down and lands, you realize those aren't little tiny dots at all. Those are structures and buildings and airport and houses and cars and all this kind of stuff. But the point is that I think Jesus is making here is that the cumulative effect of the light of the disciples is going to be unmistakably bright. This is the corporate nature that I think that he's talking about. If there was only one small light in a city... You wouldn't see it from the air. But the point is that there are many lights, there are many things lit up to draw attention, to make things visible. And I think that's the principle that Jesus is teaching in verse 14. So remember, 
These are not just 12 random dudes sitting around Jesus. These are the disciples who are the apostles who are going to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and they are going to start the early church. They are going to strengthen the churches and the whole church age starts with them. This is very significant what Jesus is teaching. This is not just an isolated uh, kind of localized thing. He is telling them, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And what he means by that is that the disciples take this message to the world as they establish churches, it is not just here a little bit of light, there a little bit of light. What's going to happen is that as Christians come together in the context of local churches, those groups, those gatherings become visible to the world. See what I'm saying here? So this is not just about an illustration or a metaphor. I think this is telling us about the importance of the local church, that as Christians, as lights, as disciples of Jesus gather together, we become unavoidable. <laughs> you cannot not notice a whole bunch of light together, right? So Jesus is focusing here on this corporate aspect of the disciples being light. The city on the hill deals with corporate language or community effect of the disciples' righteous living. And I'm saying this is going to be played out when we come to the book of Acts, when we come to the epistles, when we see the church start, that it is not individual, 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 individual. It is corporate together, city on a hill cumulative effect of the light of the gospel in these men's lives. But Jesus does also deal with their personal witness, their personal light by using the imagery of a lamp on a stand. Look again at verse 15 with me. Jesus says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So, this is an extremely obvious statement, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus says, the purpose of a light is not to snuff it out. Who does that? Okay, It's not to hide the light. When someone lights a lamp, you want to illuminate the space. You want to see what you're doing. You want to reveal what is in the darkness so that you don't trip on it or step on it or step on the Legos. Ooh, we've all done that, probably. So it would be foolish for a person to light a lamp, and then cover it. You remember the children's song? <laughs> I almost asked if we could sing this this week. Hide it under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine. Remember that song? I don't even remember what that's called. This little light of mine. There we go. That is coming from this text. As silly as that seems, that is what the text is saying. Nobody lights something just to put it out. That's, that's foolishness. But not only is it foolish, it's a waste so lamps in this time took oil to light. They didn't have electricity. We flip a switch, they lit a lamp. So when you think about lighting the lamp, you needed a wick. You needed a container. You needed oil to put the container in, a bowl or kind of a lamp shape. Often it was just a bowl. You needed a heat source to light it. So if someone goes through all of the trouble of procuring a bowl and finding a stand to put it on, putting a wick in it, filling it with oil, lighting it up just to cover it, that's wasting the resources. This probably isn't the main point, but I think that this is an implication of what Jesus is teaching. And here's what I mean. We've already established that Christ is the source of the light, right? He is the one from which the light is coming. He provides what is needed for his disciples to take this message, this source of light to the nations, 
to those around them. And if they take that light, if they take all of the energy of getting the flame lit and then they snuff it out, they're squandering it. Does that make sense? Jesus has provided them with the light. So if they just kind of ignore that or waste it, they're missing an opportunity and they're not being good stewards of what God has given to them. So in this metaphor, we also, I think, see a lesson of stewardship, that we have been given the light. We have been given the light of Christ, and that is not meant to stay with us. It is not meant to be snuffed out or hidden or removed. It is meant to be shared. One more comment before we move on to the last section. Notice what Jesus says to the disciples in the last half of verse 15. Look at verse 15 there again. He says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. So the light that the disciples have that they are meant to share and to give to other people is meant to have an effect on people and individuals. This is personal. It's not just situations or events. It's not theoretical. But this is meant to be a personal, relational kind of thing. Their lamp gives light to all in the house. It doesn't just light up the house in kind of a vague way. It gives light to those there. That's just an emphasis on the relational aspect of the gospel. And this gives us an idea of what their mission is going to be as the apostles and the disciples. As they take the good news of the gospel to the nations, the message of the good news of Christ is for individuals, for people. You, you can't just get lumped in with a group of people and expect to benefit from their holiness. This is personal. This is relationship. Jesus is saying that you can't just ride the coattails of someone else's holiness, but the light that the disciples have, a.k.a. the message of the gospel, is meant to be shared with people. Men and women everywhere can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and that will produce a light that becomes attractive to others. So do you see how this is all kind of looped together? It's all in the same vein of discussion here. So by using this phrase, city on a hill and lamp on a stand, Jesus gives the description for both the corporate and personal effect that the gospel is going to have in the disciples and subsequently in the churches and the missions that they will establish. Now this brings us to the third and last section as Jesus defines the disciples as being salt and light. He gives a description of what that means and now he is going to show us how this way of living is demonstrated through the lives of the disciples. Let's read verse 16 together, chapter 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And like I mentioned before, here is where the, the outward, the evangelistic thrust of this passage becomes so clear to us. The salt and light, the righteous living, the instruction of the Beatitudes has not been for no account. It has all been building to this place in verse 16 where Jesus says the goal of righteous living is not to draw attention to ourselves, but that people would observe the work of God, the power of God in our life, and in turn glorify God because of his work in us. And this shouldn't be surprising to any of us who have read our Bible more than once. 
Because everything God does is for his own recognition, his own credit, and his own glory. Everything he does is meant to cause human beings to say, wow, how great is our God. And it is no different when we come here to living a life of holiness. So I want to focus on two aspects of this demonstration maybe three. I put two in your thing of light and good works, but we can't ignore the glory of God. That's the, that's the kind of ultimate outcome of what's going on here, but let's dig into this just a little bit more. When Jesus says in verse 16, he opens it and says, in the same way, what's he doing? He's connecting it back to what we just saw in 13, 14, and 15. That should be pretty obvious. Just as a lamp gives light to those in the room, just as salt is used to preserve and flavor, just as a brightly lit city cannot be hidden, in the same way, the life and the conduct of the disciples should have the same kind of visibility, the same kind of exposure to the watching world. In fact, I think those two words sum up this whole section really well. Exposure and visibility. One of the commentators that I read really often and who I really appreciate, his name's R.T. France, he says this, even though the light metaphor is suited for a variety of applications, right? You, you could use that for a bunch of different stuff. Here, the context indicates that it is about the effect which the life of the disciples must have on those around them. It takes for granted that the job description of a disciple is not fulfilled by private, personal holiness, but it includes the witness of public testimony. You hear what he's saying there? We have a job description as disciples. God does never say, you figure it out. He gives us everything we need to know in his word. And that job description is not fulfilled by quiet, personal, private holiness. Does it include those things? Absolutely. You will not be a public witness if you are not privately pursuing God. Those are connected. But you cannot bifurcate them. You cannot separate them into two different categories and say, well, I'm going to be holy at home and I just kind of keep quiet. out." That's not it. The job description of a disciple is to live out loud the faith that God has given you. He goes on. The subject of this teaching and the aim of the discipleship that it's promoting is not so much the betterment of life on earth as it is the implementation of the rule of God. So Jesus is bringing about, not just, let's, let's create things better, let's make it easier for you to live. He is saying that the primary purpose here is to establish the way of living that God has given to us. The goal of the disciples' witness is not that others emulate their way of life only or applaud their morality, but that they recognize the source of this distinctive lifestyle and glorify their Father in heaven. Isn't that great? This is the whole point of Jesus' teaching. It is not about you and I living some kind of pietistic life just for the sake of doing it. This just emphasizes to me, it, it makes it so clear why we must be born again before we can live this way. If we just go after the external things, if all you hear me saying is, you need to do better, you need to do more, you need to do it publicly, fie on that, it's rubbish. 
We have to be born again. Your heart needs to be changed before we can ever live like this. And that's what this guy is saying. This is not just about recognizing us and our morality and our ethics and our separation, our holy, I don't do that, I'm holy. Forget that if it's not motivated by a heart that has been transformed by the Spirit of God. And we also need to remember, not all righteousness is righteous. About five minutes after Jesus says this, he's going to say this in chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Well, which one is it? Are we supposed to do good deeds to let others see? Or are we supposed to not let others see our good deeds? Is Jesus talking out of both sides of his mouth? No. No, there's no contradiction. All we have to do is look at the motivations for each passage. In Matthew 5.16, the text that we're in this morning, the motivation for good works is that God receives glory. In chapter 6, verse 1, the motivation for the good works is to be, he uses the phrase, seen by others. And this intimates a kind of recognition, a kind of approval of other people. So do you see the difference in the motivation? It is not wrong to pursue the observable living out of the Christian life if your goal is to glorify your Father in heaven. If our desire is to be committed to the gospel, to be obedient, to be poor in spirit, if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, if we are meek, if we are pure in heart, if we strive for peace, then our good works are going to come out of that and the intention of our heart will be to glorify God through the way that we live. But if our motivations for doing good works is our own recognition, if we are motivated by how other people see us only, God's not going to accept that. That's a stinky offering that he's going to throw out because it reeks of our own selfishness. So not all righteousness is righteous. And I know every one of us struggles with this to some degree or another. It feels so good to be recognized for what we do. Right? I mean, that makes you a good employee. <clears throat> you work hard, you get recognized for it. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But when it comes to living out the Christian life, if your motivation is only that you look good, you've missed the point and you don't understand the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ motivates us to good works so that God is glorified through us. It does not stop with us. And Jesus is not just commending that we go do good stuff for good stuff's sake. He is commending this way of living because it is in obedience to his word and because ultimately when we do it with the right motivation, God is the one who is glorified, not us. And this is why the new birth is so important. If we're just going after externals, we're going to frustrate ourselves. We're going to become bitter because we can't, we can't do it. We need to be changed by the Spirit of God. And not just initially. It's not enough just to start in the strength that God supplies. We carry on in that strength. 
We need to constantly ask God, strengthen me, fill me, motivate me, empower me. Because we run out of it so quick. Because of our sin, because of our circumstances, whatever. So I just want to encourage you, continually ask God, make me this way. Empower me to do this. Don't start real good and then wean yourself off the power of God and try to do it in your own effort. It won't work. So Jesus says, do it. (laughs) Do the thing. Do it publicly. But do it in a way that it is unmistakable God is the one who enabled you to do it so that he ultimately receives the glory. Now, I don't think this text is super complex. It's not that it's hard to understand. I think we understand what Jesus is saying. I think the difficulty comes in how we apply it, in how we live it out with any degree of consistency. And unfortunately, there are so many people in our, in our context, in our day, in where we live, there are so many people who have grown comfortable with what I call theoretical Christianity. And what I mean by that is the kind of Christianity that never has a practical import into their life. They say, yeah, I, I understand. Jesus did this and Christians are called to do that and whatever else. It's kind of a name-only Christianity. And this far too common in our day and age right now. To these kinds of people, the power and the effect and the usefulness and the application of the gospel is relegated to the classroom or to the pulpit or to a commentary or a Bible study and it never makes its way into their life. That is theoretical Christianity and it is no Christianity. If we don't make the connection between what God is calling us to in his word and how that gets our boots moving on the ground, it's worthless. Nowhere in the scriptures do we see that Christianity is to be a private thing. It is designed to be public. (laughs) And for us to say, okay, yep, I sit in church and I nod in agreement at everything and then you Don't even think about it until next time you come here. That is dangerous living. This is meant to be taken with us as we leave here. There is an entire world around us that needs to see this, hear this, be taught this. And if we relegate the living out of the gospel to churchy contexts, there's no hope for those around us knowing God. We have to take this with us when we leave. Don't relegate it to the pulpit. It's not just my job to understand this. It is your job to understand what God has called you to and to live it out in the power that he supplies. So what does that look like? All of us have different contexts, different experience, different backgrounds. So what does this look like? Well, it depends. That's a frustrating answer, isn't it? <laughs> Let me just give you a couple examples. And you're going to have to wrestle with this. I, I can't apply to every possible situation, but I think you're getting the picture, and I think you know how to do this. But let's give you a couple examples. I have in mind here, we have a lot of young people in the church, students, kids, young adults, whatever it is. You, at this point in your life, need to live with your eyes wide open. You need to understand what is coming. 
and what your life is going to entail as you make the transition from being a child to an adolescent to an adult. It's not just about responsibility and commitment and jobs and careers and college and all that stuff. You need to decide right now that you are going to live for the Lord no matter what. That you are going to live out this Christian life that you have been hearing about, that your parents have been teaching you, that you have read about in the Bible. You need to know and determine right now that you are going to live for the Lord. And Jesus made it really clear in just verses 10 through 12 that sometimes that kind of living is going to create a mess in your life. But the encouragement here is that that's not always the case. Sometimes living out your faith is going to result in other people seeing what you do and glorifying God. What an encouragement. What a blessing. Parents, you need to instill this in your children. Give them a foundation. Teach them biblical wisdom. Prepare them so that they're not blown around by every wind and wave of doctrine. Do they know what it means to live the Christian life? Maybe you stay at home with your kids. Maybe you travel for work. Maybe you're retired. No matter where we are, we all have impact and we're all visible to somebody. So what are they seeing? Do they see Christ in us? Do they see us living out this thing? Do you lose your mind when something changes unexpectedly at your job? Or do you say, bring it on. I trust the Lord. There's just so many ways we can put this into practice. And I just want to encourage us, all of us now, everyone who hears my voice, don't leave the gospel here on Sunday. Take it with you. That's what this verse 16 is all about. Let your light shine. Do the thing. Invest in people. Sacrifice for them so that they will see God in you and glorify God. It's not hard. It's just impossible <laughs> without the work of the Holy Spirit, right? So I want us to take some time now as we close to pray about this and ask that God would give us the kind of fortitude, the kind of strength, the kind of foundation that we will need to live this way. This is what he's called us to. And to be obedient disciples, we have to be salty, we have to be bright, and we have to be distinctive to the world around us. So let's pray and ask that God would help us to do this. Father, we acknowledge right now our inability here. It, it, when we stop and think about it, it becomes so obvious that we just don't always have what it takes. But you have called us to live a life of distinction. And so I pray for everyone here, Lord, that we would not think about spiritual things as relegated to a small part of our life. This is not just for Sunday morning. This is not just for the study. This is for every moment of our living. And I pray, Lord, that you would empower us, those of us who have been saved, who have been transformed by the power of your word and the truth of the gospel, would you give us strength by your spirit to live this out in a way that you are glorified. And Father, for those who are among us that have not yet humbled themselves, who have not repented of sin and trusted in Jesus, if this way of living is attractive to them, praise God, but would you change their heart? Would you bring about repentance and faith so that they can live this way, not on the surface only, but from a deep and heartfelt conviction that this obedience to you is what is best for us. So God, there's so many needs here, and we don't know them all, but you do, 
And so I pray that for each one of us, help us to know what it means to let our light shine before others, that they would see our good deeds, and ultimately, God, would we bring glory to you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.